Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Harry and Lloyd. We're really doing it, aren't we, buddy? Let's start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by This Time. Pick up Jesse Wallace's romantic novel at your favorite Parisian bookstore. This Time is out now. Now time or something. Uh, welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a movie podcast for cinephiles by cinephiles and also filmmakers actors writers producer uh and all the things we we like to do all the things in order to uh, get better at this process and we bring that lens of experience and i don't know aspiration into uh every movie that we look at and see what can we learn and what can we discover about the whole process and some movies have more to discover than others, uh, but some are secretly hiding a lot of things within them um, that may look simple on the outside. And so anyway, what are we going to cover today, man? We're just going to dive straight into this jammer. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, today, we're covering the second of a trilogy uh, be- called Before Sunset. Uh, if you haven't seen this this film, uh, please pause this episode and go watch it because we're going to spoil a lot of stuff and it's all important stuff. So. Make sure to watch it. All the things. Uh, we'll touch on a couple of things. Uh, we'll look at some of the cinematography and framing. We'll discuss a little bit of the wardrobe and the way they create fresh looks without switching outfits. And we'll talk about some of the directing, changing energy for contrast, uh, some of the blocking. Um, we'll also look at some of the story and writing, the topics of conversation, good excuses to do things, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. Nine years after Jesse and Celine first met, they encounter each other again in Paris on the last stop of Jesse's book tour, directed by Richard Linkletter, a screenplay by Richard Linkletter, Julie Delpy, and Ethan Hawke, starring Ethan Hawke as Jesse and Julie Delpy as Celine. That's the easiest one I've done yet. (laughs) I was thinking, for me, it's better I don't romanticize things as much anymore. I was suffering so much all the time. I still have lots of dreams, but they're not in regard to my love life. It doesn't make me sad, it's just the way it is. Is that why you're in a relationship with somebody who's never around? <laughs> yes, obviously, I can't deal with the day-to-day life of a relationship. Yeah, we have, you know, this exciting time together, and then he leaves, and I miss him, but at least I'm not dying inside. When someone is always around me, I'm, like, suffocating. Well, no, wait, you just said that you need to love and be loved. Yeah, but when I do, it quickly makes me nauseous. <laughs> It's a disaster. I mean, I'm really happy only when I'm on my own. Even being alone, it's better than sitting next to a lover and feeling lonely. It's not so easy for me to be all romantic. You start off that way, and after you've been screwed over a few times, you, you, you forget about all your delusional ideas, and you just take what comes into your life. That's not even true. I haven't been screwed over. I've just had too many blah relationships. They weren't mean. They cared for me, but they were no real connection or excitement at least not from my side God, I'm sorry is it, is it really that bad it's not right you know it's not even that I was I was fine until I read your fucking book it stirred shit up you know it reminded me how genuinely romantic I was how I had so much hope in things and now it's like I don't believe in anything that relates to love I don't feel things for people anymore in a way, 
I put all my romanticism into that one night and I was never able to feel all this again. Like somehow this night took things away from me and I expressed them to you and you took them with you. It made me feel cold, like if love wasn't for me. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. You know what? Reality and love are almost contradictory for me. It's funny. Every single of my exes, then they're married. Men go out with me, we break up, and then they get married. And later they call me to thank me for teaching them what love is. Oh, and God. that I taught them to care and respect yeah, women. I think I'm one of those guys. You know, I want to kill them. Why didn't they ask me to marry them? I would have said no, but at least they could have asked. But it's my fault. I know it's my fault because I never felt it was the right man. Never. But what does it mean, the right man, the love of your life? The concept is absurd. The idea that we can only be complete with another person is evil, right? Can I talk? You know, I guess I've been heartbroken too many times, and then I recovered. So now, you know, from the start, I make no effort, because I know it's not uh, going to work out. I know it's you, not going to work out. You can't do that. You can't live your life trying to avoid pain. It's okay. expensive. You know what? Those are words. I've got, to, I've got to get away from you. Stop the car. I want to no, get out. No, no, no. no don't, 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 don't get it's out. It's being Keep around talking. you, okay? Hey, no, hey. don't touch me, you know? I want to get on a cab. No, Monsieur, arrêtez-vous. No, no, c'est bon au feu, là. No, 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 no. Just don't, no, 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 I, great. I love that she unravels right there um, about her exes and getting married and after dating and uh, all that stuff. And it's all this like passion and she's flustered and it's just all very human. And and I think the thing that I really love about it uh, is how it contrasts so well with the first film. Um, I felt like in the first film, they were kind of creating this perfect woman, even though she wasn't perfect, but she didn't present as perfect, but we didn't get to see a lot of her flaws and, and her own, uh, uh, issues. Um, she would talk about things that would upset her, but she wouldn't like unravel that way. And so I love that. It's, it's a really great contrast from her younger self. And meanwhile, he throughout this movie is a little more put together and mellowed out than he was in the first movie. And so there's still this beautiful contrast that's happening. And that scene, I think she's just, <laughs> I think she's so good. Um, Anyway, what having come from the first movie, and I think this is not the right series to watch back to back to back. I think this movie ages better if you were to like watch one, wait like a year, watch the next one, and then maybe I, I'll have to see how this you know lines up with us watching three in a row. But there's all these little imperfections that come out in human memory whenever you have a little bit more time because you experience this movie the way they're experiencing their original memory if you have that much more time and so i'm curious for you uh does this play a little bit better than the first one it's tighter it's shorter or does this you know just feel a little bit more of the same and you're just like oh it's okay you know it's it's, it's a fine little trip yeah i think i think it's you made a excellent point i would have loved to have seen the first one when it came out and then waited nine years to see the second one like that experience would have been incredible because then it's it's age I've aged with it, right? And with them, mm -hmm. um, Linklater is. I mean, when you talk about reality and you talk about making something that's real and that's true and honest to to human experience, I I, I don't I can't I don't think there's anybody better. Like I, I think that I mean, if you look at Boyhood, at these films, like the guy just gets it and and whether he gets it or not i don't know but putting it on a screen he's a master of it and so you know if you if you listen to our last podcast i was i was i, I liked the first one mm -hmm. you know I, I, there wasn't anything that i was like 
crazy about, but I, I did like it. But I had said, I think I'll like it more after watching the second or third one or whatever. And I absolutely is the case. And if I, this would, I totally get why this is a seminal thing for you because <laughs> you probably experience it the way that I would have wanted to experience it, which is waiting with the, with them and then finding out the things that we find out, like, <laughs> what you mentioned before in, in the last episode about like the scenario that happened six months after, right? You don't, even though you know that from the trailer, okay, they they didn't end up together. You don't know why. You don't know like what happened. And we find out very early on, they give you that pretty early on that, that, you know, that he showed up and she didn't. And so, and, and, but, but that is, that is the cornerstone of, of the reason why they are that they are. You, like you just mentioned it really well. She's less put together than he is. And which is opposite from the first one. The first one, he talks nonstop, doesn't stop talking, like pulls information out of her, right? Drags her through the conversation a lot of times, right? I mean, she, she obviously does the same in ways, but, but he's really the impetus of everything. And it is, it feels the opposite in this film because she has a lot she's wanted to say to him and he's had to move on because he showed up and she didn't. So he, it forced him to move on. He got married. He had a kid. So he had to be more put together whether he liked it or not. But mm. she had no idea if he showed up. She never, she never saw him again. There, she's, she's dated other men, but at the same time, they don't measure up to the experience she had with him. So she's, she's had to, she gets this unloading of this, of this feeling that she's had for these nine years in that scene. And it's beautiful because it also coincides and I felt this when I was watching it. I was like, this is about the time where they actually had sex in the first one. So where, where the whole, their whole journey came to a culmination of, of, of interaction, right. Of like, and it was physical mm -hmm. and this time it's emotional, but it's like this build into this basically, you know, lovemaking of, ex of expressing what I've wanted to express for the last nine years, only before it was the last nine hours. Right. And this is the last nine years. So, and and I just thought that the acting was phenomenal. I even told told my wife the next day. I said, I mean, it's obvious. Well, maybe not obvious. I don't know. But it, it was like it was like very telling that that Ethan and Julie were part of the writing of this, right? Because they just felt like they were having a conversation the whole time. It never felt like you know in the way that they 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 spoke over each other, interrupted each other, mm -hmm. you know, laughed at what the other person just said was like so real, you know, and even I did notice a few things, like a few cuts were, um, obviously not aligned, you know, like there's one scene where they were walking through a, a, a garden and this guy is walking towards them and then they cut from behind them to in front of them. And the guy doesn't walk past them for another five seconds or something. Yeah. And it's an obvious, you know, error, quote unquote, in the cut, but I didn't yeah. even care because it helped the conversation kept they needed that that little line to keep the conversation going forward. So, were there flaws? Sure, but you know, I mean, he's trying to keep the conversation real and and honest. And so sometimes I don't know. I forget. I forgave him for that because I just thought that the acting, the writing, the directing was just so beautifully done, so wonderful. Yeah, and it's funny you talk about the uh, the writing being all three of them. Apparently, um, and it's funny I. I thought I'd read this uh, 
previously, but after putting together the show notes for the last episode and it only had two writing credits, um, I thought maybe I was thinking of something else or I got it wrong. But apparently this was done similar to the way the first one was. And before sunrise, so after we recorded our episode, I went and uh, I was looking for behind the scenes articles and uh, photos and I couldn't find any of that. But I did come across a New York Times article that was written last year where they're discussing the first movie and they discuss uh, the writing credits being what they are. And to some degree or another, like the, the, the writer was implying there was some frustration there, even though I, I don't think that was displayed by any of the three of these people, uh, Ethan, Julie and Richard, but apparently Richard Linkletter and Kim Krizan wrote the, the blocks of it, like a 30 or 40 page script, so to speak, that was just kind of uh, guide points more than anything. And then Ethan, Julie and Richard got in a room and for over the course of, I don't know, a couple weeks or so worked it out. Like they fleshed it out. They put all the, the actual, you know, meat on the bones and they didn't get writing credit for that, which is a tricky thing because they're getting writing credit here. Uh, but I wonder if they actually wrote anything. Um, screenplay credits is a very interesting thing because uh, it, I think by the uh, guild standards, it technically means you actually literally wrote something, not that you just improved or said something. Mm-hmm. And so it can get a little dicey, but I, I think it's cool based on how much of this movie relies on what they created, the three of them, I think it makes total sense that they all three get credit. Um, I agree. Whereas you might work through a scene that the the writing says one thing, and uh, even th- even though the, the the scene turns out to be something you know that only reflects what was the intention of the writing, but all the words are completely different. I don't think that merits a writing credit. Like that's that's part of the job of an actor is to get in there and depending on the needs of the, the directing um, and, and the scene, like to get in there and to create with everybody in there. Um, and so it can get a little, it can get a little dicey whenever you're talking about proper credit um, and, who, mm-hmm. and who deserves it. In this case, I think it's 100% merited, especially given that they're, they're walking in with, you know, this skeleton of a, of a script and they're really fleshing out, you know, 80 minutes worth of content uh, based on probably, you know, 30 pages worth of starting points. Um, but they technically didn't get writing credit. Not on the first one. No. Um, oh, not on the first one. Yeah. This one, they, they did. Oh, yeah, they did. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. So cool. that felt like a, crazy. a writing of, you know, a potential wrong. Um, but yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a weird thing. And I, I wonder what the guild actually thinks about this kind of scenario. Um, cause there's other directors who, who do similar things. Um, they go in and they're like, this is what I want from the scene. And he collaborates with the actors. Uh, and I don't think they usually get credit for it. Like, uh, I want to say like crazy is another one of those, my reco from last week where the director just said, Hey, here's my outline. Here's the things I want to happen. Let's, let's explore and let's improv and, and discover it together. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's all splitting hairs. Um, I think the cool thing is making sure you're partnering with people under the right expectations and um, making sure everyone's on the same, you know, uh, uh, plane of existence, so to speak, because yeah. it would be frustrating to step in there as a right, uh, as an actor and feel and thinking ahead of time. Yeah. I'm going to get credit for my work um, as, as, as an inventor here. Uh, and, and you don't, whereas if you, if you step in with the understanding of 
yeah, I understand, you know, the stakes and what that means on, on the, uh, at the end of this thing, um, then you can go in with the, the proper expectations and that's everyone's responsibility to director first. He needs to go in there and set those expectations. Mm. But what, for me walking into this movie the first time, difficult on the one mm. hand, I was really excited. Um, on the other hand, it's a lot of trepidation because there's no expectation of a sequel. It's like if someone were to say, Hey, Goodwill Hunting has a sequel, you'd be like, Oh, is it? Yeah. Should it? Should that have a sequel? Um, right. That was before Sunrise. You know, uh, it has this very open end, and you just don't know do they meet in six months? You know, I wonder what happens. And I love the beginning of this movie is kind of addressing that trepidation. Right. Him with the book and uh, the people all around him asking, well, do they do they meet? What happens? You know, uh, and he's like, you know, that's I the beholder it kind of reveals, I think, if you're a cynic or romantic and uh, or, what's the line he said? He said some specific line that was like it takes. I, I can't remember. He, he's like uh, to, to quote my grandfather to, to answer that question would take the piss out of the whole thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. I loved that. I said, oh, OK. OK. I see what this is yeah. doing. And it's a clever out to say, to almost kind of wink at the viewer and say, look, I know you're nervous about getting answers to some of these questions, but, and that's okay. It's okay to be like a little nervous about that. Uh, but guess what? You're going to get them. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So walking in, I was like, it's, it's so easy to ruin something by building on it because as much as we would like, you know, a great movie, Godfather one and Godfather two to, to exist on their own thing. Like what happens in Godfather three could potentially change everything in the way you view the first two movies. And, and those, those are completely different circumstances, but walking into this one, whatever he does, you're building on top of this other thing. And it could, it could, you know, really affect the way we view Jesse and retroactively make me love or hate the first movie more. Um, and so that's a scary prospect, uh, walking into this thing and, and, but walking out, I was just, you know, thrilled. I was like, yes, that's, that all makes sense. I buy into all of that. And mm -hmm. I love that one of the big topics of conversation was, I mean, it was almost the, the center of this movie was the last movie, right? Um, it's the overriding thing that kind of guides the, all of their conversation. It's, it's, underlying everything they say or don't say um it's just kind of the the ghost in the room um you know what really happened that night and what happened after and what's happened since and i appreciate that he just didn't ignore it but he he didn't paint a perfect picture either like there was humans involved and therefore everything is tinted uh, with flaws and imperfections um, and it haunts both of them in completely different and, and yet similar ways. Uh, and I think you said it so well in ways that I hadn't, you know, uh, thought of. I didn't really connect how what he did certainly changed who he is and made him a more sober human being. Uh, whereas for her, because of what she exactly like what you said, because of what she didn't do, it's haunted her uh, and it's unraveled her in some ways and also made her braver in other ways. Like she is uh, an activist, you know, and uh, that's her line of work. And, and so in some ways, I'm sure it pushed her uh, subconsciously to, to just what does anything matter if I just go for it? 
like there's nothing left to lose if if i've already kind of lost this one special thing anyway um you can just kind of feel these motives underlying everything and every piece of the conversation i yeah it it really worked for me and uh that's a hard that's a hard thing to do i know and and what what better way to bring him back to paris than a book tour he has a wife and he has a kid so what would he be doing in paris by himself right well it'd probably be for some kind of work but you know if he's like i don't know working in oil or like he's a lawyer or something like that's like bland and boring and that's not that wouldn't align with like you know the character he was in the beginning which was this you know very romantic like open you know like let's talk kind of character so write a book right and he's not he's not happy in his marriage so yeah write a book about this girl that you met or this person that you met on a on a train years ago this one experience right to find her <laughs> he said it and he said that in the in the movie i i i in a way i wrote this to find you and then you know all these other things that you find out in the in the film like she lived in new york the same time he did at some point and he thought he saw her at one point all these other things, her for her quote unquote forgetting that they had sex and then later on revealing oh, we did it twice of course i remember <laughs> you know like it, um it, it was just even though there not a ton happened like the way that they introduce and and give you new information throughout is so organic yeah. and real and which is really hard to do when you just have two people talking you know because there has to be there has to be some kind of boring parts but they're not boring right. but kind of parts where you're just talking about nothing that really that the that us as a viewer really cares about yeah. you know when they're sitting in the coffee shop and, and they're smoking you know at some point i was like i was like okay can we just can we you know talk about the elephant in the room please <laughs> like let's stop this banter but it, it was necessary to yeah. be real yeah. it was necessary for it to feel like an actual conversation between people who hadn't who you know were legitimately interested in each other and what they've been doing for the last nine years it would be ridiculous to go just straight into you know where they left off nine years ago that's not how human beings work and I thought that they just rode that line really perfectly. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I, I really loved about the directing on this front is there's a there's some energy shifts that happen because you have this kind of higher energy moment of the coffee shop and even the walk and talk on their way to the boat. And that allows something to happen because once we're on the boat, she's talking a lot and he's just listening quietly. And it's this slower energy. He's very still. And that contrast lets the moment open up, like really open up and connect the viewer as he's connecting to her. There's kind of this old adage of a good mixtape is rises and falls. And it's it's allowing things to breathe, but it doesn't feel like it's breathing if everything's breathing all the time. And so you need these ebbs and flows, these higher rhythms and bigger other related things in order to kind of dial down, settle in. And now let's have a serious moment. Uh, one of the first things I learned from one of my first acting coaches uh, was about a good monologue. And a good monologue has an arc. You don't start at a 10, super emotional and super upset. You, you know, you start at a 2. You work your way up there. And that way, that contrast allows something more dramatic to unfold. And so 
Linkletter is doing a really fantastic job of kind of guiding the energy throughout this film so that we begin in these innocuous moments that aren't really talking about the thing that they're really thinking about. And in doing that, you allow this space to develop for this other thing to unfold um, so that you can kind of settle in and like, yes, finally, let's really talk about it. Y'all, y'all hinted at it. Now we can feel there's, you know, some frustration, but we haven't really heard the limits of that frustration. Whenever he talks about that on the boat, right? He's like, you know, I think I can, I I think I know for sure now that I did write this book in order to find you so that I Mm -hmm. could track you down and ask you why the F weren't you there? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So good. (laughs) So, so good because he, he didn't at at first when she realizes that, oh my God, he was there, which we right early on, uh, he's trying to play it cool because he doesn't want to make her feel bad. He just met her and, again and he just wants this meeting to be good, right? To be positive. And then as it goes on and he realizes, holy crap, I love this woman, you know, he, then he gets, starts getting upset and you could tell in that line, he just gives her one one line, you know, and the earlier him, the him, the, the, his character in the first film would have been much more aggressive. He yeah. was a very aggressive dude. And now he's chill and laid back. He gives her one, that one line. Why the fuck weren't you there? And then that's really it. And then, and then he, he also, I think if, if I recall in the lines after he like relaxes it a little bit, he, yeah. he said, he says, why the fuck weren't you there? And then, you know, kind of says a few things to just ease her mind. I just wanted to get that out. Like, let me just, why the fuck weren't you there? And then back up you know a little bit just to let her know like that changed my life you changed my life by meeting you and then you changed my life by not showing up and he understands he understands why but at the same time it's like god dang it life right yeah life will find a way to to screw things up when or to what you think screw things up but you know they also address the point god it's so brilliant the writing is so brilliant they also address the point of uh, she does. Maybe it's better this way. Maybe would have we would have hated each other, you know, if we would have ended up together that night. We would have given each other numbers, and like if I would have shown up six months later, and you know, nine years later, we would just be, you know, that old couple that that is not really interested in each other anymore. And maybe there's nothing to say that that wouldn't be the case, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it is better, and life was supposed to happen this way where they meet nine years later to make sure do you are you still into this person nine years later they've they've changed they've grown they've evolved into this do you still want this and then at the end it was just a perfect the way i remember okay when i was watching it i'm sorry i'm just gonna go off because i just love it so hard when i was watching it at the end I, I, I moved my mouse because I had to watch it on my computer. I moved my mouse and I was like, there's like three minutes left in this movie. How are they going to end this right now? This is ridiculous. And, uh, and for him to – she's her to say what she's been saying almost the entire movie. You're going to miss your flight. You're going to miss your flight. And him just to answer, I know. Fade to black. Like, oh my god. It just gives you all the answers you wanted right there in one little line. So good. It's so good. Such a good point. And it's a complete 180 from the first film, right? Where they let travel plans interrupt uh, maybe their their destiny together. Uh, he's like, 
where I'm not allowing my flight because it was a flight the first time too. Uh, he, yep. he wasn't going to allow another flight to interrupt this, uh, this relationship. And the other thing, just to rewind back to whenever they're first talking about whether or not he showed up, the, the other brilliant part about that writing is the way they handle it is to say that he didn't show up either. And that's so good. It allows you to experience both things. It's kind of Schrodinger's, uh, you know, train station. <laughs> like he both yes. did and didn't arrive. <laughs> yes. And getting to experience both of those realities uh, is pretty satisfying to see how she responds to the idea that he didn't show up. Um, and then getting to feel like uh, the, the pain of him showing up. And then you also get to experience through his eyes, what would have happened if she had shown up, right? Because he talks about, I wrote the the book ending, except, you know, in this one, you actually showed up and uh, we had sex for 10 days straight and, you know, everything's amazing and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so you really get all the endings that are possible through Linkletter's eyes, at least, um, and maybe even through Ethan and Julie's, you know, and that's mm -hmm. so brilliant to kind of scratch all those itches. Yeah. And I, yeah, I love it for that. Great point. Great, <laughs> great point about, cause, cause, and it was an ending, right. That the publisher didn't want. Right. Right. So, but they bring it up in conversation as like, this was, this did, it does exist somewhere yeah. in some alternate universe this ending to the book and maybe this ending in real life does exist. And I just want to address that. Yeah. Right. And you do get to feel that it's brilliant. Yeah. So good. I have a few questions for you that I'll save, uh, for, for a little bit. Um, cinematography wise, first frames, last frames was kind of interesting because it's a little bit of a reverse from the first movie and the first movie we begin on the train end on the train. And right before the end of the film, right. We montage through all the places they'd been complete opposite here we open on all the places they will be in reverse so we begin at her house and then uh montage of the city right we're on the boat uh, we see the boat we see the kind of garden wall trellis thing um, we see the cafe and then we see uh some streets and i think uh we end at the bookstore where our story begins and then we kind of slowly walk back through all those things um, and of course the last shot is her dancing in her apartment, you know, and he's watching. Um, it's a kind of a shot reverse shot moment of him watching her dancing in her apartment as we kind of just fade to black. And so I wouldn't say that there's a strong, you know, first frame, last frame in this, but there is a strong way that it's talking to the last movie mm -hmm. and, and the way in the use of the montage and uh, the cityscapes. And so that's, that's pretty cool. Framing wise. And this first, part about framing might be more incidental than anything. Uh, but I, there's something that's kind of happening on the way from the bookstore to the cafe as they're walking. Uh, the framing is, is interesting to me because there's a slight centering or at least favoring of whoever is talking or at least whoever's story is the focal point. Um, so it you know, it starts with Jesse talking about his life and he's kind of framed. He's on the left of the, of the frame, uh, but it, the frame is kind of leaning towards him. So he's not like dead center, but she's edged out a little bit and he's a little bit more closer to the center. And then at a, about the halfway point on that walk, they switch, they switch places. Um, she becomes to the left and he goes to the right. 
And she's once again now telling, telling her story and she's framed a little bit heavier towards the center than he is. And that could have just been the camera op leaning that way. Um, or it could have been the subtle direction from, uh, from Linkletter. I don't know, but I thought it was interesting. Um, another framing thing that I thought was great, uh, was in the car ride, uh, the chauffeur, the little limo ride to her place. The coverage in this is pretty strong. We have clean singles of him and her. And a clean single just means there's nobody else in the frame. Because normally a dirty single would be like an over the shoulder. You're looking at them, but you can kind of see the other character a little bit of their shoulder or, or hair in the in, in the foreground blurred out. Uh, in this case, these are clean singles, just them by, their, by themselves. Um, but there's also like this master shot of like this two shot um, of them in the same frame. Uh, and I like it because in the car ride, you can ultimately the coverage allows a lot of emotional strings to pull, uh, during editing because throughout this scene, we're cutting in between these clean singles, which I think creates a bit of a wall between them and it's them in their own heads and then their separate worlds. Uh, but then when we go back to that two shot, it kind of brings them back together. So as she's expressing her frustration over, you know, what his book did to her and, and the, the revelations that it kind of brought to her in her own life and the first, you know, uh, chaos to some degree, we're, we're in singles there and we're seeing her and his, her own world. And he can't reach out to her. He can't get to her um, there. And he's like, can, can I say something? How <laughs> can I talk now? <laughs> She's just, you know, raving. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful way to give your edit a lot of options. And it's so different from the first movie. Uh, the first film, there's a lot of dirty singles. There's a lot of, you know, over the shoulder shots and uh, they're constantly connecting in, in, in the first film, whether it's through those dirty singles or through, uh, you know, these wider shots that have them both in the frame. They're always connected in that first movie. And here they're kind of fighting to connect um, and, and to be in each other's world. And that's all through the composition and, and choosing those shots. And, and it's, it's nice. And I will talk about a little bit more on that here in a second. Cinematography wise though, uh, there's another, there's a lot more tools and, and I think tricks, maybe not a lot more, but a few more, uh, like there's this crane move, um, from above the stairs, whenever they're walking from the bookshop, uh, to the cafe, there's this beautiful crane move, uh, where we're just kind of hovering over them, uh, as it, you know, cranes around, uh, tracking their conversation. We're like, I don't know, 30, 40 feet, at least in the air. Um, or lack of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Or lack of. They don't really talk walking <laughs> up very much. It's like this, this, uh, this like feeling of, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Walking on glass a little bit. I'm just, I've been talking this whole time. I'm not going to say anything <laughs> to ruin this right now. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I remember thinking that like, how are they, what are they doing? This is crazy. This is wild. There's also the boat ride, but on the boat ride, it kind of suddenly occurred to me that there's a little bit of a glow to that scene and I wasn't sure if it's in the entire movie or just mostly in that sequence or if it's just brought out more in that sequence but maybe there's like this pro mist filter kind of thing that they added there's other types of ways to get this effect like uh, I think stockings is one of those things that old school filmmakers would put like between the lens and the camera you might throw like some stockings on there and it just makes uh, the lights bloom a little bit more it gives us this kind of dreamy, hazy effect. 
yeah, it's, it's just kind of an emotional filter that you're, you're not grounded anymore. Um, there's a, there's a dreamy out of this world outside of my body kind of feeling that it begins generating, um, in the viewer. Uh, and it's like a, a place outside of time, certainly on that bill, ride, I, I think it's there or maybe the entire film anyway. And on the chauffeur ride, I was, this is just me thinking to myself, I was wondering if maybe they had a polarizer, uh, on the, because there's the back window, I'm not seeing a ton of reflection and, um, it just seemed like an obvious thing you'd probably want to do to make sure you, you kill as much camera and boom up and whoever else is crammed, you know, in the front two seats of the car. Yeah. And so a, a polarizer kind of helps kill, can, can help kill a lot of those reflections. And wardrobe wise, this is something that occurred to me in the first film. And, you know, we ran out of time <laughs> um, and they do it a little bit more, a little bit here, but they do it a lot in the first film, uh, which is layers, dress your actors in layers. And by doing that, that allows you to refresh your look throughout the film. Um, and so for instance, in this one, they're both wearing jackets, right? And they go to coffee and they sit down for coffee. They take the jackets off and now you can see, you know, what they're wearing underneath. And so that just allows, you know, a little bit of a visual refreshing to, to happen, right? She has her, and whenever they leave, he puts his jacket back on, she leaves hers off. And you could even use that as a bit of armor, right? She's maybe pulling her armor off and he's putting his back on, you know, he's got to protect himself. I don't know. There, there might be some of that. Uh, I would imagine that would come more from Ethan and Julie than, than Richard. Um, but probably a conversation about what does the clothing mean to them and their character and how they're experiencing this day. Uh, I would want to approach it that way. Like um, he's feeling a little vulnerable and he needs to like put something on to, to cover himself um, and protect himself. And then two, uh, she has her hair up, right. And during the coffee scene, she lets her hair down. And now there, we have another visual interest thing that's happening. She has a purse. And then when, they start walking. She slings it over her shoulder. And now it kind of has this belt look, right? That's strapping across her body. Um, and then when they get on the boat, it also keeps her blouse in place whenever the wind starts blowing. Um, so that seemed both uh, practical for wardrobe reasons uh, and also like a, a way to visually interest things. But to me, I think it's important that they're refreshing their look in this movie because this is a movie where things are happening continuously this is like one uncut moment of their life this is an hour and 15 minutes of their life um, and so it seems important to have little ways of creating visual interest along the way so that you're just trying to break things up and not let it get too stale and and uh, going this kind of brings me into the, a lot of the directing and performance stuff right there's not a lot of montages there's no montages really outside of that beginning sequence there's no montages no time lapses this is all taking place in real time, and there's a lot more coverage and edits than there were in the first movie. Um, and I think that's to keep visual interest going and to be less taxing to the viewer. I think if, because the, the first movie inserted these little music sequences and breaths that happened along the way throughout their night, because uh, they spend probably a good, you know, 12 to 15 hours together uh, before they break apart. And here, this is all, they need to kind of keep the conversation moving. Um, you can't just take a break and then have two hours pass by. He's got a flight to catch. This is all put together very meticulously. And in order to kind of keep that going, 
you want to give the viewer some reprieve in these scenes. Because if you suddenly start doing a bunch of oneers, you're going to exhaust your viewer because edits allow your viewer to kind of reset and to uh, to think and to break up some of the visual monotony. That's that's really important in, in this kind of oneer uh, setup. And they only, they have like two, I think, brief moments of silent walking, right? When she walks to the front of the boat, he's on the phone. Um, and then when they're walking up the stairs to her place, right? There's this kind of silent mood that's kind of overtaking them. Like, I'm walking up to your place. This could mean a lot of things. Um, but there's something happening in the ether between them. Um, and that's awesome. Yeah. Blocking-wise, this is uh, on a bigger level. Because because of the nature of the film, that it's kind of one unbroken moment, they only they they need to connect all these places together, right? You need to be able to basically look at a map and say they walk from here to here to here to here um, and drive to here and walk to here and that's that. And you need to all time it out and say this is all here's every conversational bit that's going to happen and you also need to have a a transition of we're getting off the boat and we need to now have a conversation that happens that ends and begins exactly when that happens like there's a lot to consider uh, with all of that Um, but the way they shot this i think is really smart because they really only need to connect a few things visually find a couple places to cut and you can kind of cheat your way through these things. If you say, I really want to use this coffee shop and I really want to use this boat and I want to use this bookstore. You can cheat all that. For all we know, those are three completely different places in the city. So visually you only really need to do a few things and in order to find the right place to cut and begin your next scene. And so like the bookshop to the cafe, that seems pretty connected, uh, but maybe there's a few places to cheat the location through an edit, through some of this reverse angle edits. Um, and I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if those were, if they found that whole thing. Like, the bookshop is here. The cafe is here. We can do all that. It's about a, you know, 12-minute walk. Um, we need 12 minutes of conversation that begins and ends around this kind of thing. Because they walk into the coffee shop, and that's continuous. Yeah. You know? They say hello to the, the the baristas. They go take their seat, and it's all moving, clicking like mm-hmm. it's freaking beautiful. And from the cafe, now we need to connect the cafe to the garden to the boat, and that anything can happen there. Because we go from the cafe to a stairwell, and then we cut. We go from a stairwell. It doesn't have to be the same one. We go from a stairwell to the garden, and. From the garden, we go back down some other steps and then we cut. That garden could be, you know, 10 miles away from where the boat is. But now all you really need to do is find some, you can pick up anywhere. Like, hey, we need to be seven minutes walking distance from the boat. Great. Let's block this thing in reverse. Let's play the scene out. Okay, we'll start here and we'll walk it forward now. And from the boat can drop you off wherever. It doesn't matter because a car is going to come pick you up anyway. And through some of those edits, like you could probably even cheat that, like the boat could start, you know, seven hour trip away for all we know. Um, All you need to do is make sure you find your moment to transition between these locations and and Mm -hmm. work out your timing. So I can imagine they spent, you know, two days, you know, shooting that scene, maybe in five, like depending on how free he wants to be in making this thing. 
you could have shot this in like five or 10 days or, you know, 60. Like it just depends mm-hmm. on how much he wanted to control the performances. I think more than anything, the, the blocking on the boat ride could have been staged um, around highlighting certain buildings, right? Notre Dame um, is right there. Um, and certain views, right? And just as a way to keep refreshing the visual interest, again, trying to keep the audience engaged uh, visually um, in any way you can in order to keep you engaged in their conversation and their relationship. Um, and then, of course, you can block it so that we also know when we're arriving at our destination, right? Say, you know, hey, I want you all to start walking to the front of the boat during XYZ line so that the camera can watch us docking and pulling up and it feels so real and it's so immersive to do it that way because now when he's ending his conversation she can be like hey uh let's get off now (laughs) i'm like shut up (laughs) and it just it it feels like two people just inhabiting things and that's what their performances are right they're so engaged with each other and they're listening and they're waiting reacting trampling their lines and it goes back to you know what we've been saying this whole time of uh them partnering to, to work on this thing together, you know, is very lived in. And you can see probably, I feel like I can see how they've grown as actors, you know, um, over the preceding nine years, they were already incredible actors. Um, and they've just, you know, slightly evolved and you can feel it as they're interpreting their characters and probably the way they're inserting their own lives into, uh, the dialogue and, and their mannerisms and all those kinds of things. Uh, but to be so aware of the nine years that have passed in their character evolvement is is just so it has it's not seen super often. I mean, yeah. it's something that could be easily missed, easily overlooked. But you know, to do that whole kind of like flipping their vibe kind of thing, where she talks all the time now and and she's the one who's losing it, and and he's the he's got it more. It's just so really really smart because then you're on your toes as a viewer too because you thought you knew him you thought you knew her but we are we together are learning you know um, how they've evolved you know it's just so so cool which is which was so much better than if they were the same because why would they be the same right right Right. story and writing wise like the topics i've i mean i found interesting not just you know all their history stuff but also they kind of talk about the one thing that they never really discuss in the first film and the uh, which is their countries of origin right he's american she's french they lightly touch on it in the beginning and the end right he makes this comment about yeah i get it on the crude american who doesn't appreciate other cultures blah 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 but hey i'm trying and i and he tells that story about trying to buy a ticket and how he just completely failed and she talks about in the in the first film how she's projecting her impression of the way he's going to view their, their interaction. Like of, yeah, I get it. You, you go back to America and you tell your friends about how you had sex with this French girl and uh, blah, blah, blah. And so there's that aspect of it, but they don't really talk about their countries and they, here they do. They, they finally discuss their home countries, right? American imperialism and French men. And um, it, I just love that they explored this topic that was untouched during their first encounter, even though, to these two people, it might be the most obvious topic, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where you grew up and how you grew up and um, your the way you view each other's cultures and blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah. But it felt less like, and that was okay to me mm-hmm. because it felt less like, like a writer slash director is trying to make a statement and more about two people just talking about natural things that would come up. Does it, does that make sense? Yeah. Cause in most films it feels like that. It feels like, Oh, this guy is trying to make a statement <laughs> with this movie that didn't feel that way. Great, great point. Completely agree. And that's, that's usually what does happen. Uh, but here, yeah, it just felt like, Hey, we're going to, Julie, what do you think? <laughs> like, uh, who who do you think your character turned out to be, and why, and how does that impact the way you see Jesse now? Um, and yeah, it, it felt organic and absolutely natural, and and not with pretense um, and pre-digested, you know, perspectives about the world. It, it felt pretty uh, pretty genuine. I love when they leave the cafe. That whole sequence of imperialism, whatever. I love that the motivation was not, hey, do you want to go walk around for old time's sake? Uh, That would have just killed me. It's like, oh, that's just lazy. But instead, what he does is he uses the looming journey right through airports and airplanes in order to explore Paris. He's like, hey, I just I want to see Paris a little bit while I'm here. And they do. And that's so much more satisfying um, because it it just doesn't reek of opportunism of the first film there's so many other ways you can take advantage of the first film but don't do that don't make this movie so obviously representing the first film because we're already expecting it we're already here for it you don't need to milk it like uh, find something else and that felt like a very genuine realistic thing to say to someone for someone who's about to like spend 10 hours you know uh, on on a flight or whatever Mm -hmm. he he probably does want to walk around a little bit and just like not be sitting sitting down yeah also love her skewed memory of events, even though to some degree she's, you know, playing possum leading up to that. There are still other moments where she probably does forget a little bit here and there. And I love that the events are are imperfect in her head because that's what happens with memory. We, we have imperfect recall uh, of, of the past. And, you know, as time passes, our memory shifts around a little bit and that yellow car becomes a green car or whatever. And he makes this great little comment, right? A memory is never finished as long as you're alive. Um, and, and I think that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. The, my last couple thoughts were about the, the chauffeur, right? I love, and they do this in the first film and it still works for me. I'm, I'm maybe some people are a little nauseous of it by now, but I love how when they're not looking, the other one kind of reaches out for them. I just love that, but doesn't touch them and like pulls their hand back before the other one sees it. It's amazing. So good. It's yeah. Amazing physical representation of their emotional state. Yes. You know, hundred percent that, um, the waltz, there's this great little reflection of Jesse that happens after she sings this beautiful song. He is walking over to, to pick out like a CD or something. Um, and he says, uh, do you just, plug the name in for every guy that comes up here and it's so good because it's this little it's a great callback to his suspicious nature uh in the first film right where he just doesn't think genuine things happen he thinks people have ulterior motives and they 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 kind of abuse trust um and but by contrast he doesn't press it and the tone of what he's saying is completely different from the tone of the first film like and it just kind of reflects his maturing or or sober nature yeah and i i just really appreciate that yeah that's a great point because it and it that goes to 
that speaks to the the acting in an incredible way because so easily that delivery could have been a little more curt or a little bit more curt's the wrong word a little bit more um accusatory of you don't really feel this for me you know or or do you i i am insecure and i need for you to to verify that that is actually about me and not about anybody else and yet in this case it felt more like a just like a joke because she doesn't really answer and 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 he doesn't and like you said he doesn't press it It, it's just like and then he just you know puts on a a piece of music so nina oh man nina my God. Yeah. Her little story about Nina. I wonder if that was like uh-huh. Julie's actual story. Uh, oh, probably. You know, right. It felt. Uh, yeah. It, I don't know. Yeah. It felt completely genuine. Uh, it was either hers or, or Richard's, but I bet I just, her being a French, uh, I assume she's French, um, Parisian, uh, you know, actor out there in tune with the arts. I can imagine she went. And then on top of that, I think Nina Simone had passed away. Uh, not long before filming this. And so it's probably on everyone's mind. And it's like, oh, I have a great memory about Nina Simone, actually. And blah, blah, blah. It just becomes part of the film. Beautiful. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I think I think that's all I got. So. It's all good stuff, man. man. Do you, and this is very <laughs> off the beaten path here, because they go to that little coffee shop and she's like, yeah, and this is, you know, my favorite shop. I Or whatever she says. Uh, do you have a favorite coffee shop? I mean, I, I guess not really. There, there's a shop that I've been to out here. I forget what it's called, but it's in uh, downtown San Rafael, and it's where um, what's his name? Uh, or it's Mill Valley, downtown Mill Valley, where um, uh, George Lucas goes a, a lot. And they have like these just just next door to it. They have a statue of of uh, Yoda and um, uh, Indiana Jones in in i don't know whatever just ne- next to it but he goes there a lot apparently and they have live music there Whoa. every day every day that i've been there they've had you know a guy in the corner playing guitar or something like that or a full band uh, i've been there a few times and so i would say that place because they also have really good food Ooh. i forget what it's called though so nice you i'd love to check that out on there yeah yeah i don't know that i have a favorite there's certainly some favorites like i used to really like Dominican Joe's. I like lazy coffee shops where you just have furniture all over the place and the less coordinated it is, the better. Yeah. And I, I thought it was just funny that link letter has a little comment from Jesse about, uh, yeah, I wish they had more of these, you know, around where I came from because Austin is filled with like these little cozy coffee shops. Um, yeah. And, and call out. Yeah. The little call out. And yeah, so I don't know. Dominican Joe's was always great. I I don't even know if it's still operating. Um, Bennu, you know, in town is very much that epoch coffee. Um, I think one of my favorites though was running around uh, Ireland a couple years ago. I settled in this place uh, in Galway called uh, uh, Rise and Grind, and it's just this cool little coffee run by you know some women over there, and they have really cool spots and i just posted up there for like a week editing some some projects um and yeah it's hard to beat you know a nice little cozy spot that's cool i mean yeah i actually if i had to pick one in in the world that i've been to it's probably bennu and i would say now that now that i think you mentioned bennu i was like oh yeah because i used to live on the east side right by the first one now they have multiple but when and i remember when that opened and i we knew the owners really well. They were there every moment oh. of every day because, you know, 
they just opened and um yeah it was it was wonderful over on the east side and and then um uh yeah so and it was so cool jenny like worked on her uh thesis or her you know whatever master's thesis or whatever while she was taking going to school at ut uh there she she was before we had kids she'd go there all the time yeah wow speaking so good speaking of jenny so there's a uh, a lot of you know romantic things happening in this film, right? Long walks, boat rides, blah blah blah. My question to you is, what's the most romantic outing you've had with Jenny? Ooh, no pressure. <laughs> oh my god! Um, it doesn't have to be anything like over the top. It can be simple, or or maybe it is over the top. Maybe y'all done a balloon ride over you know, Istanbul for all I know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. We don't get out as much as we'd like to now having kids. It's like so expensive, you know, you got to go out when you have kids, you know, it's more, I would say they're all pretty much, they're all very similar because we're very, we're very homebody. And, um, so we like, like to us, you know, like just having a dinner where we don't have kids screaming in our, ears even if we're at home that's romantic you know um it might seem boring but to us it's like just any time that we get a chance to like talk to each other without interruption is is wonderful actually right now um, on fridays she doesn't have to go into work until like one o'clock and so i block out time from my day and we go to get coffee and we get a and to get a bagel every friday and to me and that that's so we just sit down and we just talk you know and sometimes it's about man we miss home we miss austin a lot and sometimes it's about man it's so beautiful here uh you know or you know high school kids are very difficult or uh i'm so blessed that i have this job or whatever it's just a way to reconnect and so for us like that's the most romantic that that we get which might sound boring but it's an opportunity and anytime that you take advantage when you don't have a lot of them of an opportunity where you have two people who are very busy and very pulled apart and you just, you say, I'm breaking and this is, I'm doing this with you. Like all of a sudden that becomes much more romantic than if we were to go on a hot air balloon ride, which would be adventurous, Mm. but not, uh, you know, I don't know. She would never do that ever. She would never do that. Uh, but yeah, so I think, but if I'm talking about the most romantic thing and I mean, it probably, well, there's a couple that I can't talk about, uh, but but I mean, our honeymoon was amazing. We went to Disney World and then to Vegas, and uh, that was 11 years ago. So sounds like we haven't been romantic, but we have, yeah. we have. Uh, but that, you know, just yeah, I would I would say that our honeymoon. Nice, yeah. very cool. Good question. Um, Good question. Last one. So Celine's mother, and for the record, I'm pretty much in the same ballpark as you like to me, there's nothing better than just a conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. almost doesn't matter. And yet another thing we agree with. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So Celine's what grandmother passes away. And that was her whole reason for not mm-hmm. showing up and, and missing their, their piece of destiny. But she talks about being at the, the funeral and, you know, looking at her and seeing her hands and how small she's gotten. And so, you may not have been to, you know, funerals. I don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, uh, at funerals, do you view the body, um, and say goodbye or, or not? I do not. 
that's not the person. In fact, I've told Jenny when when I go, I don't want it to be an open casket. You know, like you saying goodbye to my body is not. It might bring. I mean, maybe it'll bring peace to you, but why? It doesn't make any sense. If you died, I don't want to see your body in a casket. That's not you. You know, what I want to do is I want to go watch a bunch of movies and see you in the films. I want to like, you know, watch these podcasts and and reconnect with you that way. You know, that, that that's a much more honest and real way to do it. You know, like experience the things you experienced with the person when they were alive or, you know, just be with them in in your head. It, yeah. So, no, I I have no desire to see anybody in a casket. What about you? That's a great question. Completely agree. And it's funny the way I kind of arrived at that. Growing up, I went to a lot of funerals. Like people were always dying. Classmates, teachers, family members. Like I just went to endless Mm -hmm. uh, funerals. And at one point, you know, uh, uh, a classmate, a a good friend of my brother's passed away, um, car wreck. And we go to the funeral and or the viewing uh, wasn't even the funeral yet. And I'm back there with my neighbor, um, Teresa, and I go, you know, say goodbye, you know, see, see his body and um, go back, take my seat. And she's still back there. Um, and, you know, I, I turn around looking at her and like, are you, are you going to go, you know, say goodbye? And she's like, no, I have him up here. You know, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and at the time I'm like, I don't know, 12, maybe 13. And six months later, she passed away. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Murdered by a cop. And that's when I, I decided I'm not going to go look cause this is what she wanted. And ever since then, I just, I don't go view them. And I think y'all had it right. I'm like, yeah, that's not how I'm going to remember you. That's not who you were and everything that you are is now part of me. And so, yeah, I completely agree. And I, wow. yeah, I think it's, you know, a beautiful way to move forward uh, instead of, you know, having like, it's like, oh, hey, you know, did you enjoy your, you know, five star meal and um, the the dessert and your, your coffee afterwards? And OK, great. Hold on. We got one more thing. Shove all this dirt in your mouth. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's not a way to end things. But everyone has their own thing. I'm not judging anybody who, who you know, approaches life differently. But that's that's the way I kind of look at it. It's like I, I don't want to like leave this beautiful yeah. memory with dirt in my mouth. That's that's not it. I mean, yeah, you don't want your final memory of someone, especially if it's someone that you knew well, mm-hmm. that you loved, like to be a lifeless corpse right like why would you want that it doesn't make any sense to me at all in any capacity and um uh, what i was going to ask you is do you think that her grandmother would have wanted her to be at the at her funeral or would have wanted her to go to to be at the the train station that's interesting i can't remember we don't know her grandmother you know but she talks about her a little bit in the film she doesn't i can't remember enough about her grandmother to quite put my finger on her temperament um, but the, you know, the idealist in me was like, no, she would have yeah. wanted her to go take off and, you know, yeah. go live your life. And I've tried to live my life that way, actually, um, not living my life in a way that binds me to things, uh, that are temporary anyway. Like mm-hmm. the odds of me living somewhere in order to be close to family is less important to me than pursuing my life and my dreams and doing the things that bring me personal fulfillment. Cause I think, not doing that 
not chasing my dreams and personal fulfillment would make me bitter towards the people that I'm sacrificing for without them even asking you to do it. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, I, that's the way I view her grandmother is that she would want her to go and uh, pursue her life and, and chase her, you know, her whatever dreams, destiny. I totally agree. I, I mean, because we don't have a lot of information on her grandma, I, I, I picture her being a little bit like Celine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, or Celine like her. Right. Um, exactly. Anyway, cool. Good questions, man. Nice. Um, cool. So, what you're going to recommend, or before we do that, any predictions for what happens in Before Midnight? Uh, none. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think that they end up together, obviously, from the last line of the movie. Um, but, I, I I don't I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> and and judging from, you know, what I had expected from the last one to this one and how wrong I was <laughs> or, or right in some cases, I guess uh, I really don't even want to venture a guess. I just want to experience it. So nice. Very, no. very cool. What uh, what are you going to recommend this week? So I can't believe that we haven't recommended this before because it's such an amazing movie. Uh, and it's an Ethan Hawke film, and I think you can guess it. Uh, Maybe you can guess it. Maybe you can't guess it. Before the devil know. knows but you're it, dead. No, no, uh, no. Uh, but it's an incredible film. Oh, wait, that's no. Never mind. That takes place in a single day. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And amazingly written, amazingly acted, amazingly shot, and yeah, Training Day. Uh, I'm going to recommend because it. It was the first time I'd seen a movie and and not well not the first time but one of the first times I'd seen a movie and not seen the making of it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't see any camera work. I didn't see any lighting. I didn't see any acting. I just literally saw communication between two two dudes. And then the story unfolding the way it does is just unbelievable and Ethan Hawke is like dude puts on a clinic and I mean, obviously Denzel Washington does too. That goes without saying that guy cannot do any wrong, but man, it put him in a, you know, whole new category for me. Uh, I think when I saw that film, I was like this guy, I mean, I would watch anything he does. That's so funny because right before, like right before starting the podcast, I was thinking about training day and Mm -hmm. Denzel, um, like literally as I was fixing my tea, um, that's still hot. Um, I was thinking about it and, and some other ways. And I was like, man, we should probably cover that at some point. Um, we should, because I really love Anton, Antoine Fuqua. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So, and we talked about that a little bit on the guilty. Uh, if you're a premium premium, if you're a Patreon member, uh, then mm-hmm. you probably heard our, our stuff on that. And, we have other things cooking for and and things. for that. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to recommend uh, guess who's coming to dinner. If you know, you, you like good conversation and, and drama and people evolving. I think that's just, I, I always struggle to name my favorite classic film uh, because I oscillate between, Lawrence of Arabia and guess who's coming to dinner. I think, you know, they're they're just both fantastic. Um, and for two completely different reasons. Uh, but guess who's coming to dinner is absolutely incredible and yeah, check it out. I I won't say anything else about it. Yeah. So stay tuned for next week. We will finally come to the end of the trilogy of the before trilogy called before midnight. Um, the final movie, 
TBD if it's the final one ever or just the, the final one for now. Yeah. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe, drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you are able to. Um, and, you know, feel free to leave us a note. If there's something you want us to talk about or a movie to cover the kinds of things you find interesting. We don't talk a lot about wardrobe. Um, we did on this episode, but maybe you really like the idea of discussing wardrobe and uh, we can take another look at that. Maybe find someone who does wardrobe and, and get their perspective on a film. I don't know. And awesome. if you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash before sunset. And we'll leave you with a quote of the day from Nina Simone. I love this. Did you know that the human voice is the only pure instrument? That it has notes no other instrument has. It's like being between the keys of a piano. It's so unbelievably accurate. It's scary. Because um, I've been getting into synthesis a lot lately. Over the past, I don't know, six months, a year. Um, and I absolutely, I, I love it. I adore it. It's very expensive to get into. But at the same time, it has made me appreciate sound right and the develop and the, the creation of sound a lot more because i've had to understand what is attack what is decay what is sustained like and what's the difference between sustain decay like all these all of these things oscillators and and stuff and i don't still don't fully grasp it i think it's just like something that you know you kind of have to spend a lot of time with right and really like want to learn about but in essence the goal of it is to be able to do things that a human voice can do, right? The whole goal, like, you know, you have, you have an oscillator that goes up and down to make sound, right? Which is the same thing. But then you also have things that, are, that can affect that, that can then move by themselves, right? Between the notes and stuff. And it's, nothing stands out as, like a human voice does. No matter what instrument is playing, a human voice will always take precedent, even if it's in the background, even if it, like, you know, has a bunch of reverb and is way down in the mix, you will always hear a human voice um, unless you affect it to the point where you can't tell that it's a human voice, but it will always jump out at you. And I think that goes, that speaks to a lot. One, you know, that we want to, we want to hear that. We want to relate to humanity in sound or in music or in, in any capacity, but also that it's just special, that nothing else can do what it can do, you know, that it can be you know, A sharp minor, you know, and B plus or minus 15 cents, you know, whatever, like it can do all these things and then flawlessly move into something that, that, that is spot on. It's, it, and having her, one of the greatest vocalists of all time, say something like that, just, you know, you, you got to believe it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Where did you find this? Uh, yeah, I was just, Whenever they started talking about Nina, I was like, yeah, I, I need to just find something that she said. And she has mm -hmm. so many great quotes. And this one just struck me because talking about the human voice as an instrument is really interesting in the context of a movie. You know, um, we have all these people walking around talking and those are instruments. That's music of, of a different sort, you know. And I just love that idea that, you know, the actors aren't just performing, you know, dialogue. They're to some degree or another singing um, to each other mm -hmm. and, and for the audience. Yeah. Love it. 
Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been a, a really great episode. I, I, I learned a lot from all of your notes, man. Like for real, I can't wait for the next, the next one. Uh, cause I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. So very excited. Uh, but thank you guys for joining us. We really appreciate it. Make sure to subscribe, review us on iTunes, all that good stuff. And, and let us know if there's a film that you'd want, like us to cover. Uh, we'll probably do it. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you either way. Uh, until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.